All right, everyone, it seems as though we have a critical mass, and we're right at 10.05, and I want to maximize our time with our speaker. We're trying something a little different this time, and that is we're leaving these doors open during the coffee hour per Rob. So um, I hope everyone will remember that uh, the speaker series is in progress. So good morning. I'm Clark Irvin. Thank you all for being here this morning. I am so pleased to have with us an expert on many things. And one of those things is J. Edgar Hoover, a man that I have been fascinated by over the course of my entire life. Uh, we're joined today by Beverly Gage, who is a professor of 20th century American history and the director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy at Yale University. She, uh, in addition to her teaching and research, has also written for many major newspapers and magazines, including, of course, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and she is currently a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. In 2015, she was um, elected to serve as the first chair of Yale's Faculty of Arts and Sciences Senate. We were just talking about that. And in 2009, before that, she received the Sarah Ribikoff Teaching Award for Teaching Excellence at Yale. She is herself a graduate of Yale University and also of Columbia University, where she earned her PhD. And she is the author of two very important books, the first of which is called The Day Wall Street Exploded, A Story of America in its first age of terror, which examined the history of terrorism in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, focusing in particular on the 1920 Wall Street bombing. And she has just finished the book, which of course will be the subject for her talk this morning, called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover in the American Century. With that, please join me in welcoming Beverly Page. Thank you so much for being here, Beverly. Thanks uh, for that introduction uh, and for uh, being here on a, uh, on a fine, somewhat gray uh, Sunday morning. Um, I'm going to talk for a few minutes, uh, as you heard, about this big new book that I have written that is the first biography of J. Edgar Hoover uh, in about three decades. And it's particularly enjoyable to be here because it is really a book about Washington. Uh, Hoover was born in Washington. He died in Washington. He never had any employer other than the federal government. And so over the course of doing this research, which took uh, over a decade, I spent a lot of time down here in Washington and at the National Archives out in College Park. Um, and so it is uh, a story that is as much about this city and about the growth of the federal government over the course of the 20th century as it is about this uh, strange, to me, quite fascinating man. So what I'd like to do this morning is just give you a pretty quick overview of what's in the book. I uh, asked if there was a copy of the book here, and, and, and there isn't, unfortunately. And I did not bring one, um, in part because it's really big. Some of you may have seen it. And it's pretty heavy to carry around. Um, so it is a book that runs uh, about 800 pages. Um, and uh, that is in part because 
Hoover's life story spans so much of the 20th century and because from his perch, uh, not too far away from here, he really had his fingers in everything um, for most of the time that he was alive. And so what I thought I would do is just give you a, a quick overview of that story of his life and of what I tried to do with the book and then uh, toss it out to all of you. Hoover is one of those subjects that people come to um, sometimes with very particular questions and interests and uh, we're probably not going to get to the bottom of uh, you know, the Rosenberg case and the Kennedy assassination and the Alger Hiss case and the King assassination. I mean, this is a book that, that, that touches on many, many different things um, about Washington, about the federal government, about the FBI, and about Hoover himself. Um, so I, as I said, will give a quick overview and then we'll have some time for Q&A. When I have told people over the course of the last decade that I'm writing a book about J. Edgar Hoover, often their first question is, why would you want to do that? And I think generally what they mean when they ask that question is, why would you want to dedicate so much of your life to this man who we think of, and I think in many ways rightly so, as one of the great villains of 20th century American history, one of the least appealing people ever to exercise political power in the United States. And in many ways, that question answers itself because that's precisely why I wanted to write a book about Hoover. Um, and in particular, as I began to look into his life as a historian, I thought that we had a pretty one-dimensional image of Hoover as this kind of villain, this tyrant, this person in particular who sat alone in his room, wiretapping everyone, listening in, this kind of rogue agent in American history um, that nobody liked and nobody really supported. Well, as it turns out, J. Edgar Hoover was actually one of the most popular, widely supported figures in American government for most of the time that he was alive. And that combined with much of the history that I tell in the book made me think that we actually need, uh, if not a more redemptive view of J. Edgar Hoover, and this is certainly not a book that is intended to redeem the man, um, at least a more complicated understanding of who he was, how he came to power, how he exercised that power, and the influence that he had, um, and the ways in which it implicated other people um, over the course of the 20th century. So that's sort of the thrust of the book. Um, the idea is to kind of take Hoover from being uh, this rogue agent, this somewhat marginal, uh, very one-dimensional figure in American political history, and really put him back in the center of things, uh, look at the story of how he built his power, um, and tell a more complicated and I think nuanced and balanced story um, about Hoover and the FBI. There were a couple of other things that drew me to writing about Hoover. One, as I think I've mentioned, um, is that there hadn't been, even at the time I started writing this, which was in 2009, uh, there hadn't been a new biography of Hoover uh, since the early 1990s. And over the course of that time, in part because of the end of the Cold War, in part because of the work of other scholars, lots and lots of new materials had started to come out uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, through 
through the usual process of file release. And so there are all sorts of fascinating new files. I am a historian, I'm kind of an archive nerd, so I actually you know, enjoy sitting down with these thousands and thousands of pages and seeing what's in there. Um, and then the last, which I think I've also already hinted at, is that Hoover seemed to me to be a particularly good vehicle um, for telling a story about the rise of American government, uh, the growth of the federal government over the course of the 20th century, and in particular, a lens into uh, an area that we don't tend to think about as much, right? We tend to talk about politics as parties and elections and Congress and presidents um, appropriately, given where we are, uh, but most of the work of government goes on elsewhere, right? Most of the work goes on uh, in what we might think of as the administrative state, the security state, um, by people who are in fact not elected to office but are often appointed or who are career government servants. And I thought that Hoover uh, was a really interesting lens into telling that story. And as I said, uh, he was a kind of unparalleled government servant in lots of ways, but not least uh, in the longevity of his career. He became head of the FBI in 1924 and he died in that job in 1972. So he held the same job at the head of the FBI for 48 years, and just to fill that out a little bit, that means that he served under eight different presidents, four Republicans and four Democrats. So he was appointed under Calvin Coolidge in the 1920s. He was there through the presidency of Herbert Hoover and the onset of the Great Depression. He stayed through all three plus terms of Franklin Roosevelt's administration. Uh, so that's the New Deal, uh, the Second World War. He's there under Harry Truman for the dawn of the Cold War. Uh, he is there under Dwight Eisenhower for two terms in the 1950s. He stays on under John Kennedy. He stays on under Lyndon Johnson. And he is also there under Richard Nixon. And he dies uh, toward the end of Nixon's first term. So it's an amazing swath of time. And it's a particularly amazing swath of time for thinking uh, about the federal government, about the rise of the security state, and about the transformation uh, of the city that we are in right now. Uh, I, I should say that at the beginning of his life, uh, Washington was some of a backwater, uh, not a place that many people uh, wanted to be. And of course, by the time he died in the 1970s, it was uh, a true center of uh, real government power, um, in many ways, uh, a global center as well. And so that's the story that I try to tell. I'm going to uh, just add a few details to that, sort of walk you through the book, and then highlight a few of the themes that were most interesting to me, and then we'll just open it up uh, for some Q&A. Um, so this 800-page uh, this book uh, with 58 chapters plus an introduction and epilogue uh, is divided really into four major parts. And each of those parts uh, represents a really important and I think quite different chunk of Hoover's life. Um, part one uh, begins not too far from here uh, with Hoover's birth in 1895, as I said, right here in the city of Washington. Uh, he grew up on Capitol Hill, um, right behind the Capitol, 
on a uh, little part of Capitol Hill called Seward Square. Still there today, so if any of you know the Capitol Hill Methodist Church that's over there, um, that is on the site of Hoover's childhood home, um, the place that he lived from the moment that he was born on January 1st, 1895, um, until he was 43 years old. Uh, he lived with his mother uh, that whole time, um, and then he moved out to 30th place, uh, which is up in Forest Hills, uh, out in the uh, Northwest, um, and he lived there for the rest of his life. So just two homes, both of them here in Washington. Um, but the first part of the book really looks at Hoover's birth and upbringing in the city of Washington. Um, and in particular, it draws out two strains of that story, which I think are uh, themes that then continue through the rest of the book. Um, one is his immersion, um, even as a very young man, and even at the moment when this was pretty unusual, um, in a world of federal government career service. Uh, he was born into a government family. Um, his father worked for the Coast and Geodetic Survey, um, which was one of the kind of first professional agencies within the government. Um, and so Hoover and his family and his neighborhood and his upbringing is sort of born into um, a tradition of unelected career government service at the time, of course, citizens of Washington, D.C. could not vote. Um, he never joined a political party. He never voted. And in fact, uh, that nonpartisan identity um, and this kind of progressive era vision of what uh, appointed and career government servants could do was part of his upbringing is something that he puts into effect. Uh, themes of expertise and efficiency and administration and professionalism, uh, nonpartisan service, the idea that actually the government was going to be best served by having many people who were insulated from the whims of party politics and elections. Uh, Hoover comes of age in that tradition, what we might call a progressive tradition, certainly a set of ideas that dominated the progressive era. Um, and he maintains those ideas, uh, certainly in his early years and in many ways for much of his career. I think the other thing that Washington gives him is uh, perhaps paradoxically a deep conservatism on lots and lots of questions, but particularly on the question of race. Hoover comes of age at a moment when the city of Washington is segregating on racial lines, like many parts of the South, many parts of the North as well. It's a period when Jim Crow is really coming into existence and is being enforced in new ways. Um, so he comes through the Washington public school system, which is a segregated public school system during those years. And many of the institutions in which he is trained and comes of age are either segregated or segregating. In fact, when he first gets his job in the federal government, uh, at the Library of Congress before he moves on to the Bureau of Investigation. This is during the Wilson administration. Um, and of course, it is Woodrow Wilson who actively segregates federal employment in much more rigid ways and in many agencies and bureaus for the first time. Um, so Hoover comes of age in that world. And there were a number of Washington institutions that I think really shaped his outlook on this front. He went to high school at Central High School, which was uh, the um, 
sort of um, most famous and most elite public high school, white public high school in Washington. Um, and he is trained there in a, a kind of government ethos, right? He's a kind of middle-class kid uh, going to school with the children of many other government servants. Uh, he then went on to George Washington University, which at the time that he began there in 1913 was largely a night school for government servants. Um, so he worked at the Library of Congress by day, um, and then he went to law school at GW at night, and that was a pretty standard pattern. Uh, lots of lawyers, also doctors, uh, and other professionals being trained, uh, but the night program at GW was much more important than, than the day program during those years. Uh, the other institution that became really interesting to me in Hoover's upbringing, uh, and particularly his time at George Washington University, was a fraternity called Kappa Alpha uh, that he joined, became very involved in, became the chapter president, um, and maintained ties to for the rest of his life. Um, Kappa Alpha was an explicitly Southern fraternity that had been founded in 1865 in the aftermath of the Civil War to carry on the traditions of the White South. And by the time Hoover joined uh, as a young man in uh, the teens, it was widely known as a kind of prominent segregationist fraternity. Some of its most prominent figures, uh, alums, were people like Thomas Dixon, um, who wrote uh, a, a book called The Klansman that became the basis for Birth of a Nation, which is the film that came out uh, when Hoover was in college, um, and many other prominent figures as well. Many Southern Democrats in Washington uh, we're moving uh, through the chapter house, uh, congressmen, senators, and others um, as alums and really uh, training this new generation of young men. So Hoover, uh, I think we can see a lot of his uh, outlook being formed during those years. Last part of chapter, uh, or of part one, uh, which as I said is about his early years in Washington, then describes how it is that he goes to work for the Justice Department and makes his way up. Um, and that happens immediately upon his graduation from law school in 1917. If you know your American history, you know 1917 is a pretty important year. Uh, Hoover graduated at just the moment that the United States was entering the First World War. Um, rather than going into military service, he immediately entered the Justice Department Department, uh, which had just acquired a whole host of new duties, uh, including political surveillance of uh, left-wing radicals and war dissenters, uh, the internment of uh, German citizens, um, and many other wartime duties. And it needed a new fleet of young lawyers um, to help out. So that is Hoover's first job, um, is moving into the wartime Justice Department. Uh, he's first assigned to German internment and registration programs. In uh, 1919, it turns out he had been so good at that, he gets a big promotion up to something called the Radical Division, which is uh, the FBI and the Justice Department's first sort of peacetime attempt at surveillance of left-wing radicals. Um, he is a big orchestrator behind the scenes of the Palmer Raids, which are famous deportation raids uh, aimed at anarchists and communists. Uh, when there's a backlash against that, a change of administration, um, rather than 
uh, getting pushed out with uh, his boss, the Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer. Uh, he actually gets another promotion, um, and he becomes the Assistant Director of the Bureau of Investigation. He survives a bunch of the scandals of the Harding era. Um, and when the uh, Justice Department and this little organization called the Bureau of Investigation within the Justice Department sort of uh, collapses in a series of corruption scandals in 1924. Uh, the new attorney general, a man named Harlan Stone, who goes on to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, looks around for someone who can reform this organization, hold it together, keep it running, and he turns to this 29-year-old uh, who has been there and who seems to be extremely good at files and paperwork. <laughs> and he makes him director of the bureau. So that's part one, is sort of how did this 29-year-old get this job? Uh, and I think it's worth noting uh, that at the moment that he got that job, of course, nobody knows what the FBI is going to become. It has a few hundred agents. There's not much federal jurisdiction at that moment. They're really looking for someone uh, who can come in, root out some of the corruption, uh, root out some of the political surveillance scandals. And so Hoover actually enters office as uh, a fairly insignificant appointee, but also as a reformer, someone who is uh, going to do away with those abuses and create uh, this new, efficient, professional government agency. And that's what he sets out to do. So part two of the book kind of looks at uh, how he begins to transform the Bureau of Investigation, which then becomes the FBI. Uh, the 20s, he spends a lot of his time uh, really not doing the sorts of things he had been doing early on, uh, surveillance and such, but in fact trying to build this progressive government bureau. He emphasizes things like professionalism and efficiency. Uh, he starts hiring only lawyers and accountants, most of the out of either GW or Kappa Alpha. So that whole generation of early FBI officials tends to come out of one of those two institutions. Um, one of them is a man named Clyde Tolson, uh, who joined the FBI out of GW in 1928, and of course goes on uh, to really become not only Hoover's number two at the Bureau, but also uh, his life partner. So the book has a lot about Hoover and Tolson. Um, I'm happy to talk more about their relationship in the Q&A. Um, some of it is very public and very widely uh, uh, known at the time and easy to document. The fact that they had uh, this real social partnership were widely accepted as a kind of public couple of sorts uh, throughout most of their time together. And then, of course, other pieces are a little harder to get at. How did they really feel about each other? Were they having sex with each other? What did all of that mean? And I try to, you know, kind of use the evidence we have. Uh, if you have a copy of the book, one of the things that I like quite a lot um, is that there uh, we have Hoover's personal photo collections, uh, many of which uh, the photos that are in there in the, in the 30s and 40s in particular, a lot of them are quite intimate photos of his vacations with Tolson. Uh, they're there on the beach uh, looking into the camera at each other. Um, you sense the real intimacy of their relationship, and I was able to uh, reprint many of those photos, although just a, a small fraction of them um, in the book itself. So he spends the 20s kind of building this bureaucracy in his vision, a pretty small, tight-knit core of agents. 
um, that he has a lot of control over, in part because they don't have that much to do. There isn't very much federal jurisdiction. And then comes Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. And it's really during the New Deal that Hoover uh, himself and the FBI institutionally gets most of its power. Um, three things happen in the 30s and 40s under Roosevelt. One is uh, that the FBI begins to move into crime fighting much more aggressively. So John Dillinger, a lot of the famous showdowns and gangsters of the 30s come out of the New Deal's war on crime. Uh, the sense in the Roosevelt administration that crime fighting, like so many other areas, uh, of governance are now going to explicitly be part of the federal government and the federal agenda. Um, so FBI agents begin to carry guns. Uh, they get jurisdiction over bank robbery and interstate kidnapping. Um, and this is where the image, you know, the famous Hoover holding a gun, uh, a Tommy gun, and, and, and facing the camera uh, comes out of this moment in the 1930s. Though, honestly, it's not clear to me uh, that J. Edgar Hoover really ever knew how to shoot a gun. Uh, he was a lawyer and not a policeman, um, and, uh, and he was not an investigator either. So he was really a bureaucrat, administrator, a lawyer. Um, but this became the FBI's image. They come to be called G-Men. Uh, the title of this book, G-Man, uh, comes out of this moment in the 30s. And of course, it stands for government man, um, which is uh, the big theme of uh, of my, of my work. Uh, two other things happen in the 30s and 40s. Uh, one is that Hoover becomes a celebrity and at Roosevelt's urging and in the ethos of the New Deal uh, sets up a very elaborate public relations and publicity uh, um, subsection at the Bureau that goes on to create uh, his legend in Hollywood uh, and in print in all sorts of ways, radio shows, comic books, speeches, articles, Hollywood films. And then the last is that under uh, Roosevelt's urging, uh, they move back into political surveillance, um, particularly in the 1930s uh, as the war and uh, various movements are heating up in the United States, uh, targeting fascist and communist movements. Uh, and then once the war comes along, really beginning in 1939, um, looking at a whole host of um, intelligence issues uh, that the FBI hadn't been very involved in before. And you can see in both of those occasions, looking to the war on crime and then looking to wartime intelligence, that Hoover is able to pivot pretty quickly when new duties come along, when new crises come along, uh, to flip his bureaucracy. Some of my favorite chapters are the war years, uh, when they have to figure out, after having been you know, a bunch of very upright lawyers and accountants, how to become spy catchers and how to build this massive surveillance operation. Uh, that comes out of the war. Uh, the FBI quadruples in size during the Second World War um, and remains this kind of colossus in the years that follow with these two basic duties that it still has today, both of them New Deal duties. On the one hand, uh, federal law enforcement making criminal cases to be prosecuted in court, and on the other hand, being our domestic intelligence agency. Sometimes those things go together very well, sometimes they don't go together so well, but they do come out of the crises of the 30s and 40s. So that's part two of the book. Uh, part three really looks at the Cold War, looks at McCarthyism, um, and looks at this period in which uh, Hoover, having built this big institution, uh, having built it in his own image with his own people who are quite loyal to him, then is able to exercise, I think, in many ways, uh, his own political agenda, a lot of that 
having to do with anti-communism. Um, I think Hoover is uh, more than McCarthy, uh, the most important architect of the Red Scare during those years. There's a lot about how he builds the apparatus that puts the Red Scare into effect, about his somewhat ambivalent relationship with Joseph McCarthy, and I think most interestingly, uh, about the ways in which liberals in Washington in particular actually look to Hoover and the FBI as the sort of responsible alternative to McCarthy. So in a lot of the debates of that era, Joseph McCarthy is framed as the liar and the demagogue and the partisan, and Hoover is framed as the man with the real intelligence, uh, the person who's standing outside of these partisan battles, the one who's wedded uh, to the law and to the facts and to restraint. Um, and in a lot of ways, of course, we know that that isn't exactly true. Uh, in other ways, I think there was some truth to it during that period, uh, at least as compared to Joseph McCarthy. Uh, but I think the really interesting thing politically about this whole period, as I said, uh, is that liberals tended to like and support Hoover and the FBI quite a lot. Um, and these are uh, the years when he is the most popular. Uh, among Republicans, Democrats, across the political spectrum when he has popularity ratings into the 70s, 80s, and 90 percentiles, um, when he is hailed as our finest public servant, um, and in which he is able to kind of follow the cause that meant the most to him, which is uh, this kind of existential struggle against communism that involves everything from very narrow national security questions, espionage cases, uh, down to what he described as um, you know, a kind of great ideological struggle um, against atheistic communism. He uh, uh, and Eisenhower and Nixon uh, spend a lot of time over at the National Presbyterian Church during these years. Uh, he is a big public advocate of sending your children uh, to Sunday school and you yourselves going to church as a way uh, to keep your family uh, safe, both from crime and from uh, the persuasive power of, of communism. Um, so that's part three of the book. It's really about mostly anti-communism, uh, a little bit also about the lavender scare during those years, the purging of uh, homosexual government employees uh, from federal employment, uh, some of the contradictions, of course, that that raises for a figure like J. Edgar Hoover. Um, and then the last part of the book looks at the years that I think are most familiar to many people today, uh, which is the Hoover of the 60s and 70s, um, when he takes this apparatus that he built in part primarily to challenge uh, the Communist Party um, and begins to do battle. Uh, with lots and lots of left-wing organizations uh, and movements in the 60s, the civil rights movement, um, the anti-war movement, many others, and in which his popular reputation, which had been very bipartisan, uh, very kind of universal up to this point, really begins to bifurcate. Um, in which uh, many liberals and leftists in particular, particularly a new generation of activists, uh, become very critical of Hoover, um, in which conservatives, as they're emerging uh, in a self-conscious movement of their own, uh, begin to hail him in uh, much more significant ways as a public hero. Um, and so it goes into uh, the FBI's surveillance of Martin Luther King, uh, the rise of COINTELPRO, uh, Hoover's influence as a cultural figure during the 1960s, uh, some of the Johnson era war on crime, which drew on the war on crime 
uh, of the 1930s. Um, and then finally, we end with, with Richard Nixon and some of Hoover's struggles with Nixon. I'll say two quick things about this section. Um, one is it gets into the two presidential relationships that I like best, uh, which is Hoover and Johnson and Hoover and Nixon. Uh, both of those were longstanding friendships. Um, and you might think, well, Johnson the great liberal and you know Nixon not so much maybe. Um, uh, how does Hoover have these deep friendships with both of them? Uh, but he does, he lives on the same block with Lyndon Johnson over on 30th place. Um, and so they have uh, a relationship of long standing from the 1940s onwards uh, and the same with Nixon, uh, though in some ways he has lots of conflicts with Nixon as president as well. Um, the other thing that I will say just about this, uh, this late period um, is that uh, while Hoover is training a lot of his energies on the left, uh, it also gets into uh, Hoover's operations against right-wing organizations, uh, white supremacist organizations, the Ku Klux Klan, um, COINTELPRO, which is the FBI's famous disruptive operations uh, aimed at uh, figures like Martin Luther King. At the same moment that he's going after King, uh, he is actually also deploying some of those techniques against the Klan, against neo-Nazi groups, um, and I think is a little less widely known. Um, so the book uh, ends mercifully with, uh, with Hoover's death, uh, though it does uh, gesture toward the aftermath of Hoover's death, which in many ways is what cements uh, the reputation that he has today, which is uh, the rise not only of Watergate, but of the church committee um, in, in the mid-70s. Uh, as you may have heard, we may be about to see another big congressional investigation of the FBI, I think a much more partisan one uh, than the church committee of the 70s. But that's when a lot of Hoover's abuses of power um, started to come out in a really significant and well-documented way uh, is right in the aftermath of his death. And I think that's what has dominated uh, our understanding of him since then. So I'm gonna finish up here with just uh, a few words about why I think Hoover's story matters, uh, not only because it's interesting and gets us into lots of territory. Um, one, I think Hoover is particularly interesting um, as someone who combined a kind of progressive vision of state power, of bureaucracy, of bureaucratic power with uh, a deeply conservative ideology. Um, he believed in federal power. He believed in administration and professional government service and all of those things. He really did. Um, and at the same time, he put a lot of them to work uh, around uh, his own conservatism on race, on anti-communism, crime, uh, religion. Um, and that's a combination that I think is particularly interesting, um, a little bit understudied, one that we actually don't see very much um, today in our world. Um, as I said, I think he also uh, gives us a different way into thinking about our political history, uh, which is not as a kind of back and forth uh, of electoral politics, but as a story of kind of continuity uh, and growth, um, at least over the time that he was there. Um, and then finally, I do think it's important to acknowledge his popularity and his incredibly widespread support, uh, not only in these presidents that he served under, but in Congress, um, in public opinion polls in the nation at large. And so uh, rather than you know, making Hoover a scapegoat for a lot of the things that we don't like uh, about what the FBI did during the 20th century, I think we have to think about who supported him, uh, who enabled some of that, um, and how all of it occurred, that it's not just uh, a story about this one man, but it's about all of us too. 
So I will leave my uh, formal remarks there, and uh, I think we have some time for Q&A, at least a few minutes. Uh, yeah, you can start in the back there. Right. I will. Yeah. So it was a question about whether uh, he had a relationship with the CIA, um, and the answer is yes. And uh, Hoover actually, when uh, the Second World War came to an end, right during the war, the FBI had had not only domestic jurisdiction, but Franklin Roosevelt also gave the FBI jurisdiction over Latin America, so it had the whole Western Hemisphere. Um, while the OSS, which is the precursor of the CIA, is, is working in the rest of the world and really in the theaters of war. Uh, when the war came to an end, the question was, what should we do? What is a peacetime intelligence establishment going to look like? Um, it was clear you were probably going to need one, but, but, but what would it be? Basically hadn't had one before this point. Um, and Hoover made a pretty strong pitch that it should be the FBI that took over uh, global peacetime intelligence. Um, he made that pitch to Franklin Roosevelt, who seemed kind of amenable to it, actually, and then Roosevelt died. Uh, and Harry Truman came in. Truman was much more skeptical of Hoover and of the FBI. And so, of course, instead of getting uh, J. Edgar Hoover running the world, uh, we get the, the CIA uh, by 1947. Uh, Hoover is particularly mad because it meant that the FBI had to shut down all of its Latin American operations, which it had just developed. Uh, and so in a fit of pique, uh, he tells them to just uh, burn everything and come home and make the other guys start from scratch. Um, and that's pretty much what they do. Uh, and then for most of, uh, really, the entirety of, of, of the rest of Hoover's terms, there are fierce rivalries between the CIA and the FBI. Some of that is just Hoover. Some of it is that they are culturally a little bit different. The FBI is a little more you know, middle class guys from GW, and the CIA guys are coming from places like Yale, and they, they don't like each other. But Hoover actually also thought that the CIA uh, was uh, lawless and um, uh, lawless, incompetent, didn't know what they were doing, weren't keeping track of things, were too secretive, if you can believe it. Um, and uh, so you know, he had those criticisms as well. But they basically really didn't get along for, for most of that period. Yeah? So I, I read your book, a good part of it anyway, and absolutely love it. It's a fabulous book. But one of the things that's very impressive is the amount of research you've done in the reference section that you have in there. Could you talk a little bit about where, because he was so secretive and burned all his files or had someone give him his files at the end. Uh, um, where he found the stumbling blocks to, to really uh, get, get the information about the book? Yeah, it was a research challenge um, in a variety of ways. So one is um, that there's actually too much information. Right? So this guy who lived forever at the head of this bureaucracy where he made everyone write everything down, um, that means that there are millions and millions of pages, I mean, particularly in investigative files, but even in you know, annual reports, et cetera, that one, could, uh, that one could look at. And so you can't look at all of that, and you have to make a set, a set of choices there. I tried to choose things that I thought either were really critical 
uh, to his life and the way that he understood it or I understood it, um, or that were new. Um, so for instance, um, under the JFK Assassinations Act of the 90s, uh, there are constantly um, uh, new documents coming out. Uh, they have to be ostensibly, so that law says everything remotely related to the Kennedy assassination has to be made public. Um, one of the things, for instance, that happened in 2017 and 2018 is that the records of the church committee, because they had investigated um, the Kennedy assassination, among many other things, uh, those were, were made public for the first time. And there are um, just hundreds of thousands of really interesting pages there on all sorts of things. Um, I read many of them. I didn't read all of them. So there's a problem of too much. Um, and then, as you suggest, there's a problem of too little. Um, Hoover asked for his personal papers to be burned upon his death, and many of them were by his longtime secretary. Um, there has been lots of speculation since then. Were they really his personal papers, or were they really, you know, the deep, deep secrets of the, of the state? Um, I tend to think there probably were some official documents in there, but I also think they were probably his personal papers because he had plenty of things. Uh, he was very private person in many ways, and there were lots of things, of course, that he wouldn't have wanted us to know um, about his uh, his personal life. There is a collection um, of his early material, and actually, you can go. So uh, see his office um, over at the National Law Enforcement Museum, which opened a few years ago, um, just uh, sort of off the, off the mall. So they have his childhood diaries and his personal photo albums. And so there is a collection of personal stuff there. Um, other things we can't get at, right? I was particularly interested in his, you know, personal and sexual life, and there's somewhat limited material on that. Uh, and then, of course, the other big challenge of working with FBI documents is that even now, even from the Hoover era, many of them are either not available or they are redacted. So the CIA, the file on the CIA is one of my favorites because you get a lot of uh, documents that say things like, you know, as instructed, I went and you know, met with uh, the deputy director of the CIA, and he had the most amazing things to say, colon, and it's all redacted. <laughs> so there's still an awful lot of files like that, uh, and they're frustrating, and there's only so much you can do with it. <laughs> Could you touch on the relationship with Kennedy? You mentioned the relationship with LBJ and Nixon and Pesky. Right. Uh, so the Kennedy years were pretty fraught for Hoover. Um, he, uh, he was actually pretty good friends with Joe Kennedy, the, the sort of family patriarch. Um, and so everyone thought it would kind of be OK when, uh, when, when John Kennedy was elected, though Hoover had been very close with Nixon as vice president and had really wanted Nixon uh, to win the 1960 election. Uh, but things fall apart very quickly uh, under the Kennedy administration. Uh, there's a kind of cultural conflict. Again, Hoover's getting pretty old at this point. The Kennedys are the first, Kennedy's the first president who's younger than Hoover. Um, even worse, he appoints his much younger brother, Robert Kennedy, as attorney general. So Bobby Kennedy is 35 when he becomes attorney general, appointed by his brother. And Hoover's in his 60s and has been there a long time and just thinks, who is this, you know, whippersnapper who doesn't, doesn't actually know anything and isn't really qualified for this job. So they get into conflict pretty quickly 
um, partly over uh, Bobby Kennedy's push on organized crime, partly just these kind of uh, cultural conflicts, a little bit over civil rights, although the Kennedys are uh, less good on civil rights during uh, most of uh, John Kennedy's time as president uh, than they uh, are later perceived as being. For instance, you know, Robert Kennedy uh, signs the wiretap orders on Martin Luther King, uh, and so they are both kind of collaborating with Hoover and at odds with Hoover on these kind of key uh, civil rights moments, but um, but yeah, it's a it's a very fraught moment. And in fact, had Kennedy not been assassinated, uh, it's possible that Hoover would have uh, left office. There was a mandatory federal retirement age of seventy at that point, and he was turning seventy on January first, nineteen sixty-five. Um, uh, but Lyndon Johnson came in instead, uh, and he and Hoover were extremely tight in all sorts of ways, and in fact, Johnson you know, uses the FBI in all sorts of really objectionable ways, um, has them spying on civil rights protesters at the Democratic National Convention, I mean, just all sorts of, of pretty outrageous things. But uh, one of the things that he does in 1964 in this nice ceremony, right over, where's the White House, over there, over there, um, uh, is uh, he exempts Hoover from, uh, from federal retirement and basically makes him FBI director for life. So you actually have Lyndon Johnson to thank for all of that late 60s and early 70s stuff coming out of Hoover's FBI. We've got literally one moment, um, Beverly, so just one quick question, and that is, um, how is it that he, and we talked a little bit about this, had such uh, an unconventional personal life at the time, Manage to hold and draw other politicians? Right. So, this is a great question. Um, I'll try to answer it very efficiently, uh, which is you know, Hoover and Tolson, as I said, had this very public relationship. They double date with Dick and Pat Nixon. I mean, they travel together. Uh, if you're inviting Hoover to a dinner party, you're also inviting Clyde. Um, and so, this is a kind of widely recognized social partnership, but of course, you know, it, it's unsaid uh, exactly whether this is a romantic and, and sexual relationship. I mean, neither one of them are dating women. There's no suggestion of that. Um, and so uh, I think there are a couple of things. One, uh, people tended to protect the private lives of political figures a little more then than they do now. So that was some of it. There were lots of open secrets in Washington. Kennedy's are a good example. Um, and I think it's also that Hoover built these kind of deep sources of power. Um, and to some degree, you know, as the reputation would suggest, built up files on other people um, that they were a, a little bit afraid of. He himself actively policed the rumors about his own sexuality. So if you were at a Washington dinner party or an event and you said, you know, I heard this thing about the FBI director uh, and it got back to them, you would actually have an FBI agent knocking on your door saying, you shouldn't be spreading rumors like that about the director who is the finest, most upstanding American that we've ever seen and et cetera. So some of it's that. Um, and then I think some of it is that it would have been such a kind of cataclysm <laughs> to think, uh, you know, particularly in the 1950s, um, that there was uh, a gay man basically in charge of one of the most important parts of the security state at a moment when uh, gay people were widely suspected of being disloyal and were being drummed out of their government jobs, were thought to be 
uh, easily subjected to blackmail, et cetera. So I think there are a combination of reasons, but it is, it, it, in many ways, it's one of those things that I, that I still can't quite explain, um, but, uh, but it's a big part of what the book tries to take apart. Everyone, please join me in that. Thank you.